This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Welcome to Perspectives on Justice. The 2020 election will go down in the history books. Following one of the most contentious campaigns in recent history, against the backdrop of racial tension and unrest, along with a global pandemic, we have not seen anything like this scenario. We had to bring in the experts today to help us with this post-election debriefing and assist us in making sense of all of this. Joining me are three experts in this area. First of all, we have Dr. Niambi Cotter, political science professor and director of graduate studies at Howard University. Dr. Cotter earned her PhD in political science from Duke University, working primarily in the area of American politics with a specific focus on race and ethnic politics, black politics, public opinion, and political behavior. She has a new book, American While Black, African Americans, Immigration, and the Limits of Citizenship, where she investigates African American public opinion on immigration. Our next guest we have with us today is Dr. Diara Robertson, History and Government Department Chair at Bowie State University. Dr. Robinson obtained his PhD in political science from Howard University and holds a master's degree in international affairs and development from Clark Atlanta University, as well as a bachelor's degree in history from Xavier University in Louisiana. Professor Robinson's research interests include black politics, comparative politics, research methods, and political theory. And rounding out our panel of experts today is Dr. Stephen Taylor, political science professor at American University. Dr. Taylor obtained his PhD from the University of Minnesota, his Master of Arts at the University of Minnesota, and his Master of Education at Florida A&M University, and his Bachelor of Science at State University of New York College at Buffalo. Dr. Taylor's teaching and research focuses on urban politics, the politics of race and ethnicity, civil rights and, liberty, and civil liberties, and political culture both in the United States and in West Africa. I want to thank uh, all three of you for joining with me today on this post-election briefing on Perspectives on Justice. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for joining me today. Now, let's get started uh, again, and uh, I'll ask each of you to uh, chime in, and let's start with your reactions to this unprecedented uh, election. Uh, 
I've never seen anything like it in my uh, years uh, here, but I'd ask uh, to professors. Uh, Dr. Carter, you want to start with you? Oh, sure. And I first want to say thank you for having, uh, having us here. I mean, I think part of the reason this election looks the way it does is because we've never had an election in a pandemic that we can recall, <laughs> and we've never had a president like Donald Trump. And I think what we've seen this week, at least, um, is how um, incomplete our electoral system is in terms of counting a more comprehensive electorate. I mean, we've never seen a turnout like this, and I think that's on purpose. And so part of the delay has been counting mail-in ballots, which we weren't, um, we haven't been used to in this ex exact number, I mean, this volume, right? We we're used to counting mail-in ballots. Um, and then the number of people who took advantage of that. And I think it really lowered um, the bar of entry to our democracy for many people, especially people who, say, have physical challenges for whom um, going to an election uh, site may not have been possible. And with the pandemic, especially when we're thinking about people's uh, underlying health conditions, more people took advantage of this, and it um, it paid off big dividends for um, Joe Biden. But I think the biggest issue has been Donald Trump and sort of the obstruction that he has tried to uh, lay throughout this process. And he's been telegraphing for months, quite frankly, what he would do if he didn't win, and he said, I will challenge every vote. Uh, Dr. Robinson? Um, just echoing that, I think what's really amazing is the turnout when you're talking about 75, oh, roughly 75 million people that voted for Joe Biden, and then on the flip side, almost 70 or 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump. Uh, being a, sh a shock to a certain degree that you had that strong amount of turnout I guess there's this 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 narrative that, particularly with the Democrats, that if we turn out, we'll win the election. But I think to a certain degree, the large turnout on the part of the Republican parties and, and Donald Trump supporters is also surprising. So uh, a unique environment, to say the least. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Uh, Dr. Taylor, you have any thoughts? Yeah, the thoughts I have about this election is it just shows it. It, like um, many presidential elections, it was very racially polarized. The fact that it was racially polarized with a polarizing figure like Donald Trump, who appealed to the, mo the basis, the lowest instincts of people, just it was an eye-opener. It showed just how people who belong to the majority group and who, quite frankly, voted for Donald Trump in large numbers, both this time and in 2016, it shows just how they feel about people that look like me. And it shows what it shows what our where our place is in society, and it's a and it's precarious about our future when we have because Donald Trump's not over. In 2024, they're going to produce somebody else like him because he's he's brought success to them, and and the, the party is you know, the, the way the party has fallen in line behind him. The elected officials, even those who were opposed to him, shows um, and 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 most of them were successful in doing so. Shows that this polarization, this racism, this hatred, works. And it works well, and it appeals well, and it shows just how people really feel about us in this country. It takes away any illusions that um, that we're an accepted group in this country. I, I, I want to uh, hit on that for a second, uh, uh, Dr. Taylor. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Uh, I was shocked 
at the uh, closeness uh, of this race. I uh, was led to believe, and I kept telling people it's going to be a landslide. I kept watching the polls, and uh, lo and behold, the polls got it wrong, and, and, and I just can't figure that out. Do you have any thoughts, uh, uh, Dr. Taylor first, then Dr. Robinson, then Dr. Carter? Well, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't surprised one bit. I think um, what I was surprised is that, that Biden won by 5 million votes. I figured he'd win the popular vote, but I didn't feel like he'd win the, by that much because I know that, that there's a lot of hostility, a lot of racial hostility, anxiety in this country, and hostility on the side of the people who belong to the majority. So I, I expected this, and, I, and it's a bad omen for the future, as I said before. Um, I, I have to admit, I was somewhat surprised, but it brought me back to... Um, a study in the 1980s when there uh, actually uh, Dr. Linda Williams, formerly of uh, College Park, did a paper called The Bradley Effect on when uh, the former mayor of Los Angeles tried to run for governor in California, and he was predicted to win. And when it all was said and done, he didn't receive hardly any support. So I think pollsters, to a certain degree, have to recalibrate their models to, to compensate, I think, with a hesitancy for certain people to admit these things. But beyond that, it was shocking because even as a political scientist, we're talking to, fo to focus on the macro dynamics such as the economy. You have a, a virus that's killed 240,000 people. You have the economy that's in the tank. And still within that environment, you had a strong showing uh, for President Trump. So. Uh, these dynamics are, are interesting, to say the least. Well, well, I'll just follow up with this. You know, whiteness is a hell of a drug, and I think white supremacy is very intoxicating, right? And I'm thinking about what Lyndon Johnson, I'm just going to, you know, paraphrase, but he's like, if you can convince the poor white, right, that he is better than the Negro, you can pick his pockets all day. And I think that's what Donald Trump has been doing, which is picking the pockets of white America. And quite frankly, he didn't invent the blueprint, but he certainly capitalized on it. I mean, this was started with the Southern strategy, right? I mean, they started this in the 1960s, and I mean, by that, I mean, Republicans, I mean, it was very clear if they cast their lot with um, racist whites or at least whites who were sympathetic to those kinds of racist perspectives, they knew that they could win elections. And, um, you know, Nixon did it. I mean, he basically said, you know, let the Democrats have the Jews and the blacks. And then we saw Reagan do it, right, when he announced his presidency in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers were murdered, right? He did it. Um, we saw, you know, George W. Bush do it to some effect in early 2000s. And we see Donald Trump really bring it home. I mean, he tapped into that undercurrent of white angst and white male anger that I think we had ignored. I mean, it's to the point now that if you look at some surveys, white men feel like they are the most aggrieved people in this country. And we're all sitting here scratching our heads like, how could it be? Because as far as I can tell, you know, uh, being born white in this country is still a significant advantage. Yet they feel like they are under attack. And Donald Trump has told them, you know, come in from the cold, those, those nasty opinions you have, say it out loud. It's not a problem, it's okay, it's acceptable to say. And then I think when we get to polls, polls are only as good as the samples. And so if you're talking to people who are more likely to answer polls than not, you may be missing some of those Trump voters. You may be getting those people who are reluctant to say, yes, I'm going to vote for this man who has 
killed, you know, or excuse me, and I say killed, who has watched 200 and some odd thousand people die on his watch, watch another, what, 9 million or so be infected with disease. We don't even know how uh, the COVID injured are going to fare in the long term, right? Those who have had COVID in, in, in recovered, we don't even know what they're going to look like. Um, we've seen this man watch the economy go into free fall. He hasn't even signed a second stimulus yet. Yet, people still vote for him. And I think what these uh, polls are not picking up on is this sort of undercurrent of white racism. They just don't account for it. And I don't care how much they adjust for education, they're never going to capture it if they keep relying on the same measures about who you voted for and who you didn't vote for. And then just doing this sort of, well, they're just telling us the truth. Well, we know people lie on surveys all the time to preserve their sense of self. So to me, I was like, you know, Nobody should be paying attention to the polls, right? You still need to turn out and every vote needs to be counted. And I think I was like my colleagues thinking that this would be, um, I knew it would be close. I didn't know how close. Um, and, and I think, you know, to some extent, we have to let the polls um, be general guides, but they cannot be a Bible. That's a good point. And it leads to uh, my next question I'm going to ask Dr. Robinson. And uh, uh, an NBC exit poll indicated that 20% or about 20% of black men who had a high school diploma or, or less supported Trump, and 22% of black men with a bachelor's degree, and 20% of black men with an advanced degree also supported uh, uh, Trump. So uh, given all the things that has taken place over the past four years, I was somewhat surprised by uh, that uh, uh, information, if that's true. So I'd ask Dr. Robinson maybe to comment on that. Um, I don't want to make too much of the narrative that black men didn't support. Uh, the numbers I've seen is roughly in the low 80s, maybe 81%, I think I, the, the Washington Post exit polls were indicating that among black men, whereas black women might have been roughly 91%. So ultimately, you're talking about a majority. But I think we have to be careful in promoting this uniformity narrative where we've always been the same. To keep in mind, people from Jackie Robinson to James Brown have been conservatives in the past in terms of black men. And although it may be disappointing to a certain degree, I think it points to even within the black community, we're still struggling, struggling with a certain degree of patriotism and sexism. Uh, even though you had a black woman on the ticket, it's just some of the narratives you've even heard from the, a lot of entertainers I found concerning over the past month or so from Ice Cube to uh, some of the uh, hip hop artists from Lil Wayne to this kind of thing. So. Uh, and you saw some of this with some of the exit, exit polls among the Latino community. So I think it's shocking, but I think we need to emphasize that the majority, overwhelming majority of black people did support the Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, Dr. Taylor, you have any thoughts uh, on this? Uh... Well, I think the days of a monolithic black community are over because the black community has become very diverse. Now, this is only a small portion of why there was uh, perhaps uh, one-fifth of black men might have supported Trump, according to polls. But we're, uh, we're, uh, this community, the black community, particularly in urban areas, you're getting a lot of people who are immigrants, who are not necessarily from countries where race was a factor. 
And then when they come to this country, it's not. So you're having immigrants in, coming in larger numbers. And so that's, that's a portion. Because if you look, um, when you're speaking of which, like in, in the largest country in Africa is one of the few countries where Donald Trump is extremely popular, where 25% of people in Africa live in Nigeria. And that's a country where he is, he is regarded, um, very highly regarded there. And, you know, and I, um, in 2016, I was living in Africa doing research for a book that I recently published, and, and I saw the, and, and I saw some of this bubbling, just starting to um, simmer. And so, you know, we, we've got, so because we've got a very diverse black community, a multi-ethnic black community now, then you're, as a result, you're going to have um, a lack of uniformity in voting behavior. All right, I asked Dr. Carla whether she has any thoughts on this at all. Well, I, I feel I feel parts of both of what uh, my colleagues have said in that, look, there's always a reliable portion of black people that are going to vote Republican. That has always been true. But I would think if you look at the aggregate numbers, most black people vote for the Democratic Party, not because they aren't conservative, but because they don't like Republican racism, right? So when we think about ideological conservatism, black people are some of the most ideologically conservative, and quite frankly, Republicans should be doing better with this voting group. They attend church more. They say they pray more. They say they have certain beliefs that are um, really, I think, part of a of what we understand to be a Republican lexicon politically. But when you think about how Republicans have used and talked about black people rhetorically through time, whether we're talking about the welfare queen or whether we're talking about the sort of thug images that are circulating presently, that's why black people don't vote Republican, not because they don't believe in some of the same things ideologically. And so that you see uh, black people, black men in particular, voting for Donald Trump and maybe him making inroads this time, I don't want to make too much hay of, hay of it because I agree with Dr. Robinson, is that if Donald Trump won or Donald Trump's voters were mostly still white people, white women, right, are a significant part of that voter base, and I, I would actually like to talk about them too. Um, but, you know, it's still because of white people that he wins, but I do think there is some subset of black men, right, beyond ideological conservatism, that someone like a Donald Trump is attractive. I mean, they've been talking about him in rap songs for, you know, 20 years. He's been around for a while. They know him, quote unquote, um, that his wealth is attractive, that um, the sort of arrogance and the way he moves through the world is appealing because that's been denied to many black men, right? Black people, but black men to walk through the world with that level of sort of, I don't care, right? Um, I think it is appealing, but I don't think by and large uh, this trend is one that um, I, will, I would lose a lot of sleep over, but I will say I think Democrats need to do a better job of messaging um, and I don't think that they do that as effectively as Republicans, quite frankly. You make a good, certainly good point that uh, there are, whether we uh, accept it or not, a number of African Americans who are Republicans have always uh, voted Republicans. And uh, I always uh, tell a lot of my uh, students that uh, my grandfather, who was a uh, Republican, would be so disappointed in me right now <laughs> that I'm uh, voting with the other party. But, you know, things have changed, you know, over the years. I want to ask uh, 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 Dr. Taylor or something uh, now. It looks like we've got some uh, new uh, swing states out here. Uh, uh, 
Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, looked like Georgia's coming up. Uh, North Carolina was in that uh, swing state uh, mode, as was uh, Florida. But uh, I just wanted to get your take on uh, whether we have new uh, uh, trends in swing states. Well, I, you know, let's start with Florida. I guess that's a state of those that you mentioned that I'm most familiar with because I live there and I'm a, a, a FAMU graduate. But Florida, is um, it was a swing state in 2008 and 2012. It stopped swinging. <laughs> it's, that, 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 that's a red state. I mean, and even in two, and there was a, a decline in Obama's support. He won, he won a majority of the vote in Florida in um, 2008, 2012, he just he won a plurality, so it, it declined, and now that's all uh, that's all over. I mean, Florida's got the senators are Republican, the governor's Republican, and it's been a long time since uh, since Lawton Childs left office, and they haven't been able to elect a Democrat, and he was a fairly conservative Democrat, which they don't don't exist anymore. So um, not conservative on race issues, by the way. He was he was uh, progressive on that issue. So you know, so Florida's not a swing state. Other states. I think some of these states, what you're seeing is the result of mobility. North Carolina, because you've got the research triangle and a lot of people who are not indigenous to North Carolina, or I won't say indigenous, not native North Carolinians, live there. So you're seeing, uh, but I'd, I don't, I wouldn't let yet categorize um, it as a swing state just yet. They did vote for Obama in 2008, not in 2012. And even then, that's because Bob Barr was on the ticket taking a few votes away from John McCain. Pennsylvania, that's that's that is a swing state. I mean, that's a, and, and I think a lot of it has um, you know has to do with what, what what swung it into the blue direction this time was was the fact that Trump was able to um, he was the best campaigner for Biden in Pennsylvania. Black, he's he scared he he scared the Hades out of black people in those urban areas in Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and Philadelphia, and they came out in in, in in larger numbers than they did four years ago. But Pennsylvania, yeah, it can go either way because you've, it's a Pennsylvania's a schizophrenic state because you you know you've got prog fairly progressive areas. You, know, you got Philly in the east, you've got um, Pittsburgh in the west, and in between that you've got Alabama. So, yeah, and. So you, you know now in Arizona, I think what's is is the growth of the Hispanic vote. A lot more Hispanics are living there and becoming citizens and able to vote, unlike the Hispanics in Florida, which went back to um, Trump this time. But see, there, uh, you know, it's a diff it's a multi-ethnic Hispanic community, just like a multi-ethnic Black community. So Mexican Americans are more liberal in voting records than Cuban Americans, and in Nevada, um, it's a swing state, but it's been it's it's becoming more reliably democratic. Um, Hillary Clinton was able to carry it because if the, um, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a switch from, uh, um, from one um, party to the next from the last election. And that has to do with the growing Hispanic vote. So I think that's what's happened. These demographic changes are turning states into swings, um, um, red states into blue states, um, and, and just in small numbers. But, Florida? No, I don't think so. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But I mean, but this is where the organizing part of this becomes really mm -hmm. important, right? I lived in North Carolina for a long time. Yeah. And you know, they'll have a Democratic governor and then have a Republican legislature. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's North Carolina. But yeah. I think um, it is a, a really important moment to take a look at what they were doing in Georgia. And these are long term commitments, mm -hmm. right, that happened to make Georgia move the way that it did, mm -hmm. which is you have to put 
boots on the ground and you have to start building those networks to get people registered and then to motivate people to turn out not just once every four years but you have to make it a practice and it has to be something that people do consistently and so if it wasn't fair fight it was the new georgia project and others who were sort of making this place um a more fertile ground for Democrats because they knew they had the bodies, right? I mean, it's sort of like what Jesse Jackson said in 84, right, when he was running. And he said, you know, Reagan won by the margin of despair because there were these little rocks laying around. And he was talking about the black and Latino and Native American people and others who had not been registered, right? They just had forgot them. And so you finally see people putting that infrastructure together in places like Georgia. And I think Florida will take a little more time. Texas will take a little more time. But if you think about the fact that I think it's somewhat the, the numbers about 60,000 Latinos become the age of 18 almost per day. I mean, this is a huge demographic. And if they are socialized to voting now, we don't know what their power can be in those states in the future. But if you look at round Texas around like Dallas, around Houston, but also in the Rio Grande Valley, you saw these sort of blue specks in this state, and it's not as solidly red as it once was. I don't know how many more election cycles it's going to take, but I think Texas is a place to look at, just like Arizona. Florida, I think, is going to still be interesting um, to see whether folks do the same thing there as they tried to do, as they did in Florida, in Georgia, excuse me. And you're going to lose, right? You're going to lose for a while, probably, if you're running as a Democrat in those places or any kind of liberal in those places. But it's possible if you invest in people. And there's no amount of polling and no amount of, of consulting that is going to get you through the hurdle of the relational important aspects of voting. You know, and another thing, I just oh, okay, want to state, uh, yes. state where the fastest growing Hispanic population and his Georgia, mm -hmm. and so that in, probably in North Carolina. Um, that, you know, I, I won't categorize Georgia as a swing state, but no. you know that. But you're, it's become a much more diverse mm -hmm. state, and plus they had a Senate race with a very popular black candidate at the same time, and that boosted black turnout mm -hmm. in that state. Dr. Robinson, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think um, a Georgia definitely is critical. But the one thing that I find fascinating about the Republican Party is that the Republicans plan long term. And uh, through their strategies at the, at the state legislative level, uh, when you consider their media platform of Fox News, um, even going back to the older Bush having his two sons be governor of Texas and Florida, this is something I think the Democrats don't think about. But I think in the case of George, it's fascinating what people like Stacey Abrams has been able to do leading the vote registration and the power of Atlanta and the suburbs, and I believe it was Macon and Savannah, these populists, because even though we talk about rural, urban rural sometimes, we forget that there are, particularly in the South, there are a lot of people of color in the rural areas, and you have to find a way to reach out for them. And as Dr. Carter mentioned, you have to engage them. And the challenge is always the, the non-presidential years. So I think what's going to happen in January with this runoff election for the Senate is going to be very interesting. Uh, is, I think it's always a challenge in the South because there is such voter suppression and there's a history there. Even though you have a large number, larger numbers of African Americans in the Deep South, the voter suppression is so heavy in places like Georgia and, and Alabama and Mississippi that it makes it very difficult. And they plan legislatively, even with Florida, you had the what was that the 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 law where the or the initiative where former felons were supposed to be able to vote mm -hmm. 
and the Republicans went back to court to a more or less a poll tax. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the Democrats, even though there are opportunities, they have to think more broadly and in a long-term manner. That's sometimes I think the Democrats don't think as long-term as the, the Democrats, uh, the Republicans do sometimes. And I wonder, I mean, sorry not to cut you off, but I wonder if that's because the Republicans recognize that they are becoming less popular, right, as a party, and that the things that they care about are not appealing to most Americans. So they have to plan long-term if they're going to sweep elections, which is why Red Map was so ingenious, right? You start planning in 2008, thinking about what's going to happen in 2010 with this new census, and thinking about, I need these state legislators. They can have the, the, the presidency because that's not where the game is. The game is in the state, right? And if we can control state legislatures, we can reapportion districts, right? We can make all kinds of things happen at the state level that will, that will ensure our power for at least a decade. And that, to me, is one of the things that I find really um, important about the Republican Party. It's not just about, you know, getting out here every few years. It's like, you have to be thinking long range. You have to be thinking about data and what that data is telling you about the places where you can actually make up some ground. And they knew that with relatively little money, they could flip state legislatures in New York State all the way down to Alabama and run, right, these states from the governor's office to the state legislatures and make it much more difficult for Democrats to have inroads here. And I think uh, Democrats, quite frankly, need to take a look at uh, Republican playbooks and stop thinking just about uh, these sort of once or two inspirational figures or these few races and really think about this as a top to bottom kind of process. Well, go. I think one and another thing is something you'd mentioned earlier, Dr. Carter, about um, black people having some conservative um, positions. And, and so do whites who might not oh, yeah. necessarily want to um, vote for Republicans. But the, if the Democratic Party continues to be um, to, to um, force out people who are pro-life, who might still be pro-female and might still be pro-equal pay, might still be pro-family leave, but, they're, but, they're, they're, uh, but, they're, um, but the Democratic Party does not welcome them, or if they're still taking, to keep taking the strong stand against um, the Second Amendment, even when, even to the point where it might violate the Constitution, and if they're and, and they're doing with the Second Amendment what the Republicans are doing often with the First Amendment is ignoring the Constitution. So if is and I'm not saying that that they, that uh, that these people shouldn't be welcoming the party, the people from the far left on these social issues, but they should also make people who are socially conservative on certain issues. Um, feel welcome, and that might be why you had one fifth of black men and one and one tenth of black women voting Republican. Because as long as as long as the Democratic Party alienates people, um, alienates the religious people, alienates the pro-life people, alienates people who want to protect their homes with their firearms, they're going to have a problem. Not just you know, especially with white voters who might want to vote for the Democrats because of their economic policies, and they're going to have a problem for a small sliver of black voters that could be the difference between winning and losing, as it was in 2016. Uh, we, uh, go ahead. Yes, Dr. Robs. Uh, in their defense, the Democrats moving forward, they have this difficult dance where they have to secure a certain percentage of the white vote, while at the same time accommodating all these other uh, groups in terms of the coalition. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge ideologically is that in terms of when we talk about ameliorative public policy and removing some barriers, the policies that 
provide more opportunities for people of color or the ones that are closer to the progressive and radical wing of the party. So they're, they're doing this delicate dance. Historically, make no mistake about it, black people are socially conservative and politically liberal, as, as Dr. Carter was mentioned in terms of church attendance and things of this nature. This has been established. So I think the, the challenge is that how do you pursue policies that improve the condition of blacks and other ethnic groups while also navigating this fine line in terms of social policy. So it's very difficult to say that I want to appeal to the, the LBGQT community. I want to appeal to a broad range of blacks. You want to, you want, it's, it's a lot of groups that the Democrats have to try to, at the same time, appeal to at once, whereas the Republican Party say, and we see this with, with the emergence of, of Donald Trump, we're doubling down on whiteness. Mm -hmm. So, and that's their focus. And they feel as though with the numbers and the, the, the infrastructure that they have, they just need to make sure they continue to secure that. So it's a difficult dance. So I'm not gonna minimize the chance that they have. We are having a, a wonderful discussion on post-election debriefing. I have three experts with me who are giving us the takeaways from this recent election. We have Dr. Niambi Kata, political science professor and director of graduate studies at Howard University. We have Dr. Diara Robinson, a history and government department chair at Bowie State University. And then we have Dr. Stephen Taylor, political science professor at American University. We're going to take a brief uh, break, and when we come back, I want to follow up on something that Dr. Carter uh, mentioned, that is the uh, state and local races. I've always told my uh, students over the years that real power uh, rests in the state and local level, so I want to come right back in a minute and uh, start with that question, Dr. Carter. The presidential race typically dominates voter attention during and around the November 3rd election. However, there are a number of other municipal, local, and state electoral races on the ballots as well. Additionally, on the ballot is one of the great aspects of a democratic voting system, that is, ballot measures. A ballot measure is a piece of proposed legislation to be approved or rejected by eligible voters. Ballot measures are also known as propositions or simply questions. Ordinarily, an elected legislature develops and passes laws. Ballot measures, however, are determined by the voters, a great example of direct democracy. Here are a few of the ballot measures that were passed in November 2020. Mississippi approved Ballot Measure 3, which replaced the state's flag that featured the Confederate stars and bars with a new flower-centric design. The new flag includes a white manolia Mississippi state flower encircled by stars and words, In God We Trust, on a dark blue background. Oregon approved Ballot Measure 110, which decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of drugs such as heroin, cocaine, methanol, establishing a drug addiction treatment and recovery program 
funded in part by the state's marijuana tax revenues and state prison savings. Florida approved Amendment 2, the $15 minimum wage initiative, which increases the minimum wage from $8.56 to $10 per hour starting September 30th, 2021, then raises it to a dollar each year until 2026. New Jersey approved Question 1 and Arizona approved Proposition 207, which legalizes the possession and use of recreational marijuana for persons aged 21 or older. Finally, Maryland approved Question 2, which authorized sports and events wagering at certain licensed facilities with state revenue intended to fund public education. Those are just a few of the ballot measures that were approved in the November 2020 election. What ballot measures were approved in your state? Check it out. You're listening to Perspectives on Justice. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. With me on this post-election debriefing are Dr. Niambe Kata, political science professor at Howard University, Dr. Diara Robinson, Robertson, the History and Government Department Chair at Bowie State University, and Dr. Stephen Taylor, political science professor at American University. I want to uh, go back. We have just a few minutes left. I want to go back and start with that question, uh, Dr. Carter, that you lifted up uh, with reference to uh, state and local uh, political uh, presence. And uh, in my view, uh, the uh, Republicans have done a better job of capturing the state houses around the country than Democrats. Can you uh, give us some thoughts on the importance of the uh, political power and the presence on the state and local levels? For sure. I mean, I think the main thing that I always think about when I think about state houses, so we talked about uh, invoking felon disenfranchisement, right, and revoking that, excuse me, and, and allowing returning citizens to have the right to vote, right? But you have state legislatures, like in the state of Florida, that are standing in the way of popular sentiment, which was voted overwhelmingly for this ballot measure. And I think when you have a sort of unified state legislator and a governor who are sort of clear what their agenda is, it makes it very difficult to bring about more progressive measures like this, which would do great things, and I'm sure, for the people who want to vote in their communities, but also change the tenor of politics in those places, quite frankly. And so when you think about what the legislature does, one of the main things that they have to do every decade is redraw uh, legislative districts, right, that we use for House elections. And... Um, you have a governor who has to sign off on those plans. And so if you have a motivated legislature, right, and that is unified with the governor's office, they can do a great deal of arranging and rearranging electoral policy in that state. And that's why those jobs are so critically important and often overlooked, unfortunately, because they're not as sexy as, you know, the national races uh, that we talk about this week, like the presidential race. But there were, what, 11 governor's races in this country um, uh, at the same time and very little attention paid to those elections because we just don't think of them, I think, as, as interesting. 
um, in the same way. And I think we often probably give the presidency so much power. We don't think about all the power that governors and other kinds of executives have um, in their states and localities. Dr. Robertson, do you have any thoughts on that? I agree. Um, I think, but I, I still go back to parties in terms of the, the support because the, the, the Republican Party, I forget the, this, this, this organization, but they suggest policy to states. The, Alec, I believe, yes. So they recruit candidates, and once the candidates get in the governor's office or in the legislature, they have a, a, a template, a policy, pro-Republican policy that they, they encourage Republican legislatures to enact as soon as they're in office. The Democrats simply do not have this type of infrastructure. And I, they, I don't know why they don't think about these things, but the Republicans win wars. Democrats win battles. That's the thing concerning to me. They, link, they think long term. So when you have legislate, preset legislature for a conservative agenda set up where all you have to do is focus on getting someone elected, and once they're elected, they can get, now you can, they give you a template to be in line in terms of conservative or Republican policy. And I think that's critical. And as Dr. Taylor mentioned, it's, it's, it's um, sorry, talk, Dr. Carlin mentioned, these, these are things that we folk don't focus on and frequently citizens don't focus on in their states, and it serves a critical role uh, long term. And it's something to pay attention to. So I think it serves a critical role, and it's something that the Democratic Party needs to put more energy into if they want to combat. Even with this election, two weeks ago or a month ago, you had, I think, in Pennsylvania, Republican legislatures in the different other states talking about the mechanisms they were considering to try to uh, counteract the vote if and having discussions of whether or not electors in different states were going to accept the results. So this is what, where the state becomes so critical. Dr. do you think? Yeah, I think a number of reasons the state is so critical, but I, I, I agree with what, um, what Dr. Robertson was saying about the Democrats not having an agenda, but it makes me think of something that was said many, many years ago, probably during the Franklin Roosevelt days, um, a humorous Will Rogers said, I don't belong to an organized party, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and that's true, the Democratic <laughs> Party is not, uh, not cohesive nationally, um, and, and as not as much as the Republican Party is, but I think one of the problems is, is that is trying to figure out an agenda because this um, it, I think it would be difficult for the Democrats to do as the Republicans do and come up with a liberal agenda and try to um, encourage that the, on the, the, for the DNC to come up with a liberal agenda and tell and the state parties to follow suit on that. And the reason why is because a lot of Democrats have don't realize it's almost like they're, um, they have Alzheimer's disease. You, you remember what's a long time ago and don't remember what's recent. And they think that this is 1964 when you had a fair-minded public, a liberal public. This is not 1964. The, the American people uh, do not favor civil rights. The American people do not favor voting rights. They don't favor a lot of the, um, they, as, a, as a whole, they don't favor LGBTQ rights. The American public is very conservative. That's why they could pass the ERA in 1972 and never get it ratified, because the public's been moving steadily to the right. The Supreme Court's been moving steadily to the right. And, 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 and I think the Democratic Party hasn't because they have elements in the party that are that are that, that have a lot invested 
in some of the politics of 1964, and that's fine, because I'm one of those people. But there's also, the problem is, is the, the public outside of the Democratic Party is not looking that way, because in 64, you could have Republicans that were sympathetic to our point of view. Not anymore. So, um, and, and I think the Democratic Party has to realize, this ain't 1964 anymore. This is the 21st century, and this is a, this is a hateful electorate. But I think this is what Jim Clyburn's point, right, Representative Clyburn's point was mm. um, early this week, kind of pointing out this sort of tension in the party currently, right, that you have folks who want this sort of really progressive agenda, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, um, you know, defund the police, things that actually enjoy a great deal of support. but what plays in New York or what plays in California is not necessarily going to play the same way in Alabama or Florida or some of these other spaces. And so how do we have an agenda that is both progressive on the things that people like and um, attentive to the geography of this party? And how do you keep both sort of wings of this thing together, and I shouldn't say both, multiple wings of this thing together, because I think there's lots of fracture. And, um, you know, I think there's also how you update your game, right? I mean, digital uh, marketing is really important here. Micro-targeting is really important here. It's not the same landscape as it was. And I think you're seeing a not just a split in terms of whether people are more progressive or more conservative, but also a split by generation about how people think about campaigning in 2020, right? Looks very different than the way perhaps their peers who entered uh, these spaces in the 60s, 70s, and 80s think about uh, how you campaign and how you pull in people into this broad coalition? Well, I think people like Clyburn and Pelosi and Biden, for that matter, and Harris are going to have to go out, reach out to these people like the squad and tell them, listen, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, we, you, you know you, you've got to realize that all of your agenda is not going to get passed, but we're going to do a better job. We're going to come closer to you than the Republicans will, so stick with us. You know, it's, just, it's, it's incremental. And that's what the Republicans did in 1968 when they had Nixon. Nixon was not the, the, the person that the far right wanted, but they supported him strongly because he made, he made clear, I'm going to, you know, because in 68 you had a more fair-minded electorate than you do now. And so he said, you know, we're going to have to go along with some of these things. You know, we can't just come out strongly against civil rights. You know, we, uh, you, you, Nixon, he, had, there, he probably had some tendencies like Trump other than he was a little bit more sane and, and, and he was an adult. But um, the, the point was is that he, uh, you, you hear the tapes, you know how he felt about issues, but he didn't come out public. And he, pro and he made people like the, the, the far right elements of the party realize, hey, this is not what we can do right now. And this is what the Democrats are going to have to do now. They're going to have to say, the public's not going to go along with this. You know, so, you know, clip your wings a little bit and wait. You know, you know cut your losses and let's move forward. What a wonderful time to be a student in political science right now. <laughs> I was a political science major at Howard years ago, but uh, to uh, be uh, treated with these wonderful comments will be something uh, exciting. Uh, you're listening again to Perspectives on Justice. I'm your host, uh, Judge uh, Alex Williams. 
with me uh, three uh, experts in this area, Dr. Niambi Kata, political science professor at Howard University, Dr. Diara Robertson, history and government department chair at Bowie State University, and Dr. Stephen uh, Taylor, political science professor at American University. A couple more questions. I know our time is getting near. I want to ask Dr. Uh, Robinson uh, a question. He can start us off. What do you make of this uh, situation where the president has refused to uh, accept the results, has uh, uh, led many of his supporters to abide by that? And uh, do you think he has any uh, opportunity to be successful in, in undermining this election? What, what are your thoughts? Um, can't say it's surprising given his behavior overall. What I do think is fascinating about Donald Trump is how he's exposed the weaknesses and the political norms that we take for granted. You know, even though when you have these, these clashes between the executive branch and the, and the, and the legislative branch, it, you know, we never thought, we'll never consider that all enforcement and sanction mechanisms lie with the executive branch. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, you know there, was, there was talks about calling people in to testify to Congress, but in theory, Congress does not have a jail. They have police officers, but most of the, it's interesting from a constitutional perspective, all enforcement authority lies primarily in terms of force with the executive branch. But more specifically, I think that the critical thing is when we get to the point when it's for Congress to certify the election results. Once that happens, I think it becomes a mute point. Now. I'm sure Donald Trump and his legal team is going to go through a number of legal uh, jiu-jitsu mechanisms to try to challenge the results in these various states. But I anticipate, even though that the conservatives have packed the courts, I anticipate most of these things will be thrown out. And once we get to that point, it's a matter of certifying the election. And as some people have said over this past weekend, at a certain point, you just become a trespasser. So, but I do think it's critical, and I don't know if the Democrats or, or President-elect Biden is going to visit this, but the, the, the norm, the, there's a lot of political norms that we take for granted that I'm just going to accept results, and I'm going to move on to my successor and concede and things of that nature. I don't think the concession—I honestly don't know if he's going to concede. I wouldn't expect him to. I mean, it's, this, it's really fascinating to me how he's pushed the limits of how, what we perceive as a president. So I think ultimately it'd be worked out, but at the same time, I think we have to wait for this legal dance to finish in what Congress is going to do in terms of certifying the election. Uh, Dr. Taylor? Yes, sir. Well, uh, Trump said it all in 2016, and they, somebody asked him, and, and I think it was one of the Republican debates, they asked him, how, you know, under what circumstances would you accept the results of the election? He said, if I win. And that's the only way he's going to accept it if he wins. And, and see, and, and he has some strong anti-democratic tendencies, and I think he's hoping that, uh, that by, by, um, by force, uh, if, if necessary, legal team, uh, by legal means, if possible, by force, if necessary, he's going to keep himself in the White House. Because you look, just, just a week and a half ago, they were having a rally. Uh, some Democrats were on a bus going to um, Austin, Texas, and Republicans forced them off the road, and, which was illegal. Nobody was arrested, and Trump um, tweeted, I love Texas, because of that that happened. So he's, he's encouraging this thuggery. And um, 
And, and I mean, he's not alone. I mean, like in, in Florida in 2000, when they were trying to count the ballots in Palm Beach County, they had what they called the Brook Brother, Brooks Brothers Riot, where the, uh, a group of white men in large numbers forced them to stop the count, uh, not to count. So, they, you know, they're, they're counting on this force. And Trump was even saying before the election this time, he said, I want sheriff's departments to, po to, to, to surround the polls. To, uh, to, to monitor the polls, to, you know, so because he knows that he's got a lot of support among law enforcement, particularly now, you know, that he's been on their side in these um, controversies. So he's ta he's taking advantage of that, and and I, I think that he might see that as his ace in the hold. That you know, I okay. don't know. Dr. Carter. Well, I, I think Dr. Robinson is exactly right. Much of what we do is just custom. It's not a rule. I would say the only saving grace is we don't require his concession to move on, right? Once this election is certified, it doesn't really matter whether he likes it or accepts anything. What does matter, though, is the transition. And usually that would have started at this point, right? The General Services Administration would have signed a letter saying, here, here are some funds and here are some ways you can start getting your transition team on board, right? office space, email addresses, all the things we need to do business. And that's going to be really critical now because we're in the middle of a pandemic that is spiking right now. And you haven't heard the president say a mumbling word about it. So the Biden-Harris administration is going to need to hit the ground running in January. And so normally these transitions are difficult under the best circumstances. But when you have a president who I don't think will do anything to assist this incoming administration, who's in fact going to do everything to obstruct every day that they lose on this transition puts them further behind the eight ball. So on the one hand, all he can do is, you know, cry and moan about how unfair this is and rile people up and hopefully not incite violence. But certainly some people have been seeming like they're teetering on that edge um, and, and complain that this election was stolen. And, you know, Again, the election will move on without him once all the electors have come in and this election is certified, it'll move on. But he still can do a lot to obstruct the peaceful exchange of power. And I think that, to me, is, is one of the things that we have to remember, that there's a transition process that is going to be delayed because of the actions of this administration. I have about two minutes uh, left uh, in this segment here, but I have one further question I want to ask. Uh, all of you all political scientists, and how effective do you think the uh, Biden administration would be in light of the fact that they don't have the, the uh, Senate uh, majority, the court seem to be 6-3 uh, conservatives? Uh, you, you all, in the next uh, few seconds, can you give me any prediction? Uh, uh, doctor, let's go with Dr. Taylor first. So how effective will they're going to have they're going to have a difficult time because the Democrats don't play hardball like the Republicans. If the Republicans face these odds, they would just sign executive orders and dare the courts to overturn them. I mean, of course, there's, the Republicans haven't had a, a hostile court in, in in over fifty in fifty years. But so that but see, the Democrats don't play like that. They 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 play democracy, mm -hmm. which they should. They they play the Constitution, <laughs> which they should. And by doing that, they they they, they lose. Like Hillary, I mean, um, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Well, you play that game and you lose. And I'm saying they should play that game, but you have to realize the consequences of playing by the rules of, are, are, is defeat. Dr. Robinson? Yes, sir. Uh, I agree. I think well, the, state, the stakes, this, this Georgia runoffs might be some of the highest Senate campaigns ever because literally I think the first two years, because I've heard that the map in 2022 
may be better for the Democrats, but the, what happens in this election in Georgia in January is critical because I think the Republicans have demonstrated, particularly with the last couple of years of the Obama administration, that they will not move anything. So if the Democrats are unsuccessful I, I, in terms of regaining the Senate, I don't think Mitch McConnell and the, the Senate are going to do anything to assist in terms of significant legislation. They're just going to slow things out. They might be able to compromise on piecemeal legislation, but I don't have any expectations. Uh, I would McConnell, agree. You have the uh, last word. Yeah. I agree. Mitch McConnell is a force. He is formidable, and he knows the rules backwards and forwards. And if he know the rules, you can run the game. And I think the Democrats are too afraid to um, to really circumvent that body. So I, I expect it's going to be a long road for the Biden-Harris administration with a Republican Senate. So they better cross their fingers and show up in Georgia. You know, there's just uh, so many other issues I wanted to uh, get into, uh, electoral college and some other things. We have to invite you all back at another <laughs> session for that. But uh, let me thank uh, each of you for taking the time to join with us in this very, very important uh, issue. Again, uh, the post-election take back. Uh, again, uh, you've been listening to Perspective on Justice. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Alexander Williams. And with me on this uh, wonderful session we had uh, today was Dr. Niambi Kata, political science professor at Howard University, Dr. Diara Robertson, a history and government department chair at Bowie State University, and Dr. Stephen Taylor, political science professor at American University. Uh, this has been uh, quite uh, exciting, very informative, and I thank all of you for joining with me and giving your views on this uh, post-election uh, uh, debriefing. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And so there we have it. Let me conclude by saying that this recent election was like none most of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. The polls got it wrong. There were clear efforts to suppress voting. The results ended up flipping several battleground states from red to blue. We have witnessed a refusal by the president and some of his supporters to accept the decision of the voters. There are expected implications from the election in terms of new policies and new leadership and the challenges ahead in this divided country are enormous. I want to thank Dr. Niambi Carter, Dr. Diara Robinson, and Dr. Steve Taylor for sharing their insightful views on the takeaways from this emotional presidential election of 2020. Let us hope that our country can begin to unite around policies which are fair and beneficial to the majority of Americans. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.